hello. I'm Dan Lukowitz, your host of Dan on Top. And today, we've got something special. Two Dans for the price of one. I'm sitting here live in studio with a great friend, Daniel Millman, Chief Executive Officer of Noblestone Capital. Daniel, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Dan. Hey, it's always a pleasure. I, I, I just love interacting with you and, and, and love having you here. Appreciate you taking your time out of your very busy day to share some major value with our viewers. So first of all, what is Noblestone Capital up to these days? Um, I mean, we're doing a lot of interesting things. Uh, recently financed um, a good amount of purchases, some, some nice big commercial buildings. I can't go into too much detail, but that's interesting. Um, and we're actually excited these days about Opportunity Zones. Do you know, are you familiar with how Opportunity Zones work, what they are? So I'm definitely familiar with them, but I'd love to hear your take and just explain that gives some major value to our viewers. So um, Opportunity Zones are part of the 2017 tax legislation, um, and they basically allow investors to invest capital gains. Um, they could be capital gains from stock, uh, private equity, businesses, or real estate, obviously. Um, and to invest them in a very tax-advantaged way while also helping to develop, develop um, let's call them underdeveloped areas. So they allow uh, deferral of capital gains tax from the original sale. Um, they allow, if, if the new investment is held long enough, a reduction of those taxes. And then, to me, the most exciting part of it is they also allow for um, no capital gains tax on the new investment after mm -hmm. 10 years. Um, so, uh, you know, we're doing something, we're, we sort of, uh, we're applying our core model of small residential to the Opportunity Zone space, um, and we're doing some pretty exciting things. Yeah, it's incredible. Awesome. So that's some great things that you're up to at Noblestone. Um, you know, I get a lot of calls from people that are looking to invest capital, and oftentimes the question I have, and I'd love to hear your take on it, is if somebody has some capital... This actually just came up on a show I did yesterday. Somebody has capital to invest. What would be the advantages of investing in actual tangible real estate versus doing an a syndication? I know that's something that you specialize in and do quite a bit of. Yeah, I mean, and 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 that's actually a question that I answer a lot. Um, I, I would say there's three things: um, diversification, mm -hmm. expertise, and lightening your own workload. Right, so. If you invest in one piece of real estate, your own real estate, so let's say you have, let's pick a number, $100,000. How many pieces of real estate are you buying with $100,000? Typically one, mm -hmm. right? So your investment is basically concentrated in one single asset, one area, maybe one tenant, right? And then there's a lot of risk involved in that, number one. Number two, if you are, um, if you have another job, right, if real estate is not your profession, so you don't necessarily take the time or have the access to in-depth research to necessarily make an optimal decision. You might you, you might make a good decision, um, but investing with professionals who spend a lot of time, um, et cetera, and resources on making those decisions is obviously advantageous. Um, and then, of course, there's the, there's the personal time thing. So if you invest in your own real estate, there's a certain amount of your own sure. efforts that have to go in that. Um, and I find, especially for busier, more successful people, that that time is more valuable than anything. So um, what syndicators can offer is all of those things. You know, you can invest in a syndication, you can invest a little bit in it, you can invest in a fund and get a, a access to a whole diversified portfolio. 
Um, you get their special specialization and expertise, and they're taking care of everything. So it's just completely kind of an armchair investment for you, um, and you can continue to do what you do best. Excellent. So you've got your diversification, um, you've got the expertise, and then the time, the person's time. I mean, they may not be uh, you know, devoted to doing it like the syndicator themselves is. So right. that's, that's incredible. So tell us a little bit about your experience managing funds and what, what it's been like so far. Um, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. Sure. Um, it's a responsibility that I relish because um, I, I guess I kind of get a kick out of making people money. Um, but uh, I think we at Noblestone, we, we love taking a macro view. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, I was my own real estate investor and I just, you know, Either it was small partnerships or my own money, but the ability to sort of apply our theses on a macro level, you know, kind of where we want to expose ourselves, which cities, which neighborhoods, developing a whole strategy that you could that you can execute with um, a large pool of money, um, I find that to be thrilling, fascinating, and um, I think we've done a really good job at it. Yeah, you certainly have, and I mean, as someone who's who's been. Uh, able to sit back and watch. You know, I remember those days when you were investing more as, as your own investor or on behalf of smaller groups. To see how far you've come and, and just how much Noblestone has grown is quite incredible. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see what you've done so far. And I'm, I'm just thrilled at the future for, for yourself and Noblestone. So that's, that's really, really, really exciting. I'm, I'm happy for you. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, actually, since you were last on the show, by the way, you should know this, not only were you the first guest on Dan on Top, but to date, you are the most downloaded episode of all time. Okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm flattered. Yeah, so we're we're happy. We're flattered to have you back. So since you were here last time, there's a new political reality, right? And I'm curious your insight, your take as to how that new political reality uh, impacts the real estate. So you know, it's interesting because I think uh, the country and and and. Our outlook on real estate sort of went through kind of roller coaster where we thought one thing and then another thing. Um, after the election in November, uh, we figured that the Republicans were going to keep the Senate, and we thought that meant sort of like gridlock and uh, and there's not going to be a ton of spending and inflation is going to be lower than we expected and interest rates are going to stay lower. Um, and then in January, that kind of flipped on its head. Um, so the way we th- see things now, I think the two biggest stories for real estate are interest rates and inflation. So it starts with a lot of government spending, um, which is, I think, what we expect. Um, and that uh, eventually, that's going to cause inflation. And side by side with that, that's going to lead to rising interest rates. So I think I've said this before. I don't know if I said it on your show. I've certainly said it other places that the single biggest driver of real estate prices are interest rates. 100%. So when they're low... Um, prices go up, and sure. certainly that's what we've seen. I think we have a window right now, three, six, nine months, where interest rates remain uh, near their historic lows before they slowly start to to go up. Really, you think it'll be that soon? Um, yeah, without getting into like a wonky, detailed discussion, I think that uh, at a certain point the Fed starts tapering their quantitative easing. They stop. They they slow down their buying of assets. Um, which slows the amount of liquidity they're injecting in the, in the markets, and that will raise rates. But I think the bigger story there is how people perce- how the market perceives that. Sure. Because the market likes to get ahead of it. So as you know, the Fed gives its guidance and sort of hints that tapering is going to come, and we saw it 
uh, recently um, in the Fed chairman's testimony, uh, the, the rates start to creep up. So I think in that time period, we'll start to see it creep. I'm not saying that the 10-year Treasury is going to get to 4% or anything like that. But where they are now, I think there's a smallish window to continue to take advantage. That's going to continue to drive asset prices and particularly real estate higher. Um, but I think that in, whereas before, maybe it was kind of slow and steady because rates were going to stay lower. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you kind of like get a big jump up and then maybe it'll taper off. I don't know if it'll be 2022, 2023, 2024, but I think for the near term future, um, prices are, still have a great upward trajectory. As far as inflation is concerned, I think that um, things are going to get inflationary. Yeah. And uh, and again, I, I I believe I did say this on your show before we flipped back and forth with what we thought. Um, real estate is a good place to be when there's inflation, hard assets. So I think both of those things right now are definitely positive for uh, for real estate. Nothing to do with politics. I think one of the most interesting stories for prices is just supply and demand dynamic. You know that I'm mostly focused on small residential, so I'll stick there. But if you look at how strong demand is, driven a lot by um, low interest rates, but not just low interest rates, and how s- short supply is, the demand there's such there's such a spread between those two things. Pro- prices are just going up, and I'm pretty sure that's going to continue for the near future. It's absolutely incredible, actually. I mean, I, I just I think that you know you look back to 2016, 17, 18. Each one of those years, we really felt like we were nearing top of the market, and really we haven't even gotten there yet. It's very much a supply story. I mean, if you look at the um, the metrics for what's on the market, it's at decades low. Yeah. And then if you look at it's you know there's some great metrics. One of them that I love is mortgage applications for new home purchases. Mm -hmm. So you look at what 2020 looked like compared to the entire previous decade, and now 2021, and it was number one even Hmm. through the pandemic. And 2021 is beating 2020. Wow. Um, And 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 so the demand is is really there, and at the same time, supply is so short. So basic economics tells you prices are going up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I have a unique perspective on this. I'm very curious to hear if you would concur or not. But, you know, most people, most consumers, when they look at the market, they look at prices. And when I, when I look at the market, I say, you know, there's an interesting document that was added to all of the loan disclosures, you know, a number of years ago um, through Dodd-Frank. Um, and that is a truth in lending document. And in that document, it shows the borrower what the cost of the home is over the lifetime of the loan. And I say that that's an even more important metric than price. Because if interest rates are at, you know, 2.75% and the price of your home is 300 grand, well, over the lifetime of the home, that's a lot, actually a lot lower than if your loan was 5% and the prices were lower than, than that. So, you know, I think that's an important factor. And, and even though prices seem to be high, the cost of ownership of a home over the lifetime of the loan is still relatively low. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I see all the time when I'm advising people on home purchases, they look a lot at what their mortgage payment is going to be. Yeah. And that is affected tremendously by the interest rate. And, and all of a sudden, when you have rates that are you know two points lower than they were a few years yeah. ago, people can afford a lot more. And that means they're going to go in heavier when they're buying. Sure. And that is driven prices up. Absolutely. So, listen, a lot of stuff we're talking about in, in my industry, in the, in the commercial space, is you know the 1031 exchange and capital gains taxes. And I'm curious as to what your opinion is as to 
number one, what's going to happen? And number two, if there is a change in legislation regarding either of those two issues, how's that going to affect the markets? Well, in terms of whether or not there'll be a change, uh, the Senate majority is razor thin right now. Um, and it's very difficult for me to see, at least until after the 2022 elections, um, legislation of significant magnitude. And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be tax legislation, because I believe that there will be. I just think it'll be um, more moderated. And um, I, I, it, I cannot predict whether I, I think it's it's more likely to see a change in capital gains tax than a removal of the 1031 statute. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't really predict if either of those things are going to happen. Um, it's a really good question about how that would affect the market. Um, I think that what 1031s and low capital gains rates have allowed is it allows more transactions. Yes, yeah, deal right? volume, absolutely. Because if people can sell if they don't have to worry about the tax hit, if they're saved by a 1031, or if the tax hits low because, you know what, it's capital gains tax, it's a lower yep. rate. Um, I think that transaction volume would most certainly take a hit in that scenario if those things were, if, if 1031s were removed or uh, capital gains tax were, were raised. Um, but I don't know what that does to prices because I think, again, what you have there is a restriction in supply because you have less sellers, but I'm not sure that that affects, that affects demand. So um, I don't see that necessarily as a negative um, if, I'm, if I'm looking to make a bet on prices. Interesting. So you say that, that because the, uh, this will impact the number of sellers and demand would still be you know, conceivably the same, we might not see a tremendous impact in pricing. Yeah, I think if anything that that points to higher prices. Interesting. The the, the effect on demand might be that real estate inherently becomes slightly less attractive because you can no longer do a 1031. Um, but again, I think it affects the supply side much more. And if you have something that hits the supply more than it hits demand, I think that um, is a positive move for prices. Sure, sure. So, what other insights do you have for our viewers? <laughs> That's a pretty general question. My I know, friend. but you're full of knowledge and information. I just kind of want to keep it on you, like like you're just giving out so many nuggets here. So keep it going. Well, in in relation tying a, together a couple things we talked about, um, I don't think that the opportunity zone legislation is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so I would say that if there's a move in uh, the 1031 statutes or capital gains taxes, that's a big plus for uh, the opportunity mm-hmm. zone type of play. Um, and I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like cautious. I'm, I'm wondering if I should say this on air. Say it. Um, but at least right now, opportunity zones are a fixed. There's a fixed supply of that because they're um, areas that were already predetermined by the government. Sure. Um, and, and right now they're not growing. And yet you have a lot of money that needs to chase that. Um, I think that that bodes very well for prices in those areas. Excellent. Well, hey, Daniel, I really appreciate having you here. This has been an incredible episode, another incredible episode of Dan on Top. Here we are today with Daniel Millman, Chief Executive Officer of Noblestone Capital. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Dan.